Hello, hello, Bonsai friends. This is Evan Pardue of Underhill Bonsai, and welcome to episode 22 of Little Things for Bonsai People, the podcast, uh, formerly Bonsai Southeast. And today I'm joined by Carmen Leskovinsky. Hello. I, I think I got it. Was, it. She didn't clarify. Close. It, it was, was very close. close. Enough. All right, close enough. I'm going to count that as one because I got the last. I'm still riding off the wave the last time I got it right. Uh-huh. Uh, Two gold stars. I, I don't think I deserve that one. But anyway, okay. how are you doing today? One gold star. <laughs> I am doing <laughs> I'm doing well. How are Great. you? I'm, I'm OK. I'm eating a, um, a root beer float. Oh, man. I'm so <laughs> jealous. I spent four hours in the car with my cats today, so. Oh yeah, you uh, had Fun to take times. A trip to to get one fixed, and then Got you one had... fixed, and some dental work done for the other. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Remember uh, talking about that a little earlier today. So mm-hmm. glad your your cats are healthy and Me doing too. well. Uh, but yeah, and then Mike Mike's been uh, traveling a lot, so we'll, we're going to see if we can try to get him for the next one. Um, but Mike came back from India and then hit the road, and uh, apparently has been going and doing some stuff in Texas. He's got a lot of uh, workshops and intensives that he does and things where he'll just do like a revisit and uh, continue to work on people's trees with them for these workshops. Pretty cool stuff uh, he's running over there. But anyway, uh, today we'll be discussing uh, spring time. I know we kind of covered earlier like what to do in the spring, but we're going to really, we're going to really kind of narrow it down to pests such as bugs, funguses, and other issues that we might have this time of year that are going to become more and more important um, that could really set our trees back. So we want to make sure we are very crucial about these things. Uh, we have a couple of listener questions. I don't know how many we'll be able to get, but we'll see where we'll get. Uh, depends on how long it takes me to get through the intro today. But uh, <laughs> But I would like to also mention that our podcast is sponsored by our amazing, amazing 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 patrons amazing uh, patrons that are that are from our patreon page patreon.com forward slash little things for bonsai people and our bonsai best buds our top tier uh patrons are tori seeley salise sorry tori messed it up on this one uh warehouse rat boyd snell grove ricky ruins (laughs) joshua bentley snappy chappers uh ryan Giardano, i think i got it right that time joel jenkins and justin knight and backyard bonsai australia so those Ooh, last three are, are new yeah um so we yeah we have a little a little uh little crew building here thank you guys so Yay. much for supporting Thank you. And um, we should we should actually catch up and see whose birthday it is. But I haven't done that birthday thing in a minute. So happy birthday to everyone whose birthday it is. Even if you're not a Patreon, happy birthday. Uh, But (laughs) eventually we'll eat cake for you. Um, But if you would like to support us in other ways, then um, you can go to my Facebook, uh, Evan at no, wait, Evan on Evan Pardue (laughs) on Facebook and follow me there. Underhill Bonsai has a Facebook account, Instagram account. You can find it on there under the same name. Go to underhillbonsai.com to see my articles that I've written. Um, I haven't written one in a little while. I feel a little bad, but I should get back on that. And then also you can check out my online store there. 
for Mike, you can go to kitsunebonsai.com and also on Facebook and Instagram. Mike's got some great stuff. He's got awesome progressions of his little trees. Go check him out. And then you can check out Carmen. Uh, she's got uh, the Purple Pot Society, which is a Nationals Women's Club, uh, bone, National Women's Bonsai Club that uh, she was a co-founder of. You can go over at purplepotsociety.org and go see what's going on. It's $35 to be a member for the year. Great price, great information, good resources. Um, and then you can go check out Carmen's uh, Instagram, Becoming Bonsai. But, oh, wait, one more thing. I have to I have to bring this up to you because we, have, we failed to mention our amazing editor. Uh, all <laughs> of our e- episodes, this one and some of the more previous ones, have been sounding great. Um, I know I had an issue with my microphone in the last one because... Uh, I made I made a big doofus move and switched over my mic to my computer last minute on accident. But operator thank you. error. Yeah, no, it was me. It was totally me. <laughs> but Matt O Matt. Donnell. Matt O'Donnell is our editor. Uh all praise thee. Uh Yay, he's, Matt. He's a, a bass player and music producer in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, if you have a podcast out there and you like what you're hearing here and you would like to reach out to him and have him, re- you know, edit your podcast or work with him on audio engineering of of just about anything. He's that's his that's his main uh, job and career. Uh, you can reach out to him on Instagram, Matt, uh, Matt O'Donnell or his website, Matt O'Donnell dot com. Uh, and he's a contact form on there. But uh if all you can do today is just listen, that's great. Uh, listen to all our episodes. We got some really good ones that we re- we released out the uh, previous weeks. We've been releasing weekly. I'm very proud of us. Uh, well, it's been me and Carmen, uh, you know, re- being uh, recording and going every week. So yeah, go check out all this the content that we have. Uh, Mike's on there. He's got uh, one episode with the the guy Sammy from from france that was a great that was a great little uh feature Mm, there mm -hmm. we'll have another feature coming up really soon i don't want to spoil anything uh but if you can go and subscribe uh follow download just whatever you can that helps the show grow that helps us get out to a broader audience and it helps the algorithm everything helps so uh for bugs and diseases we were kind of talking a little bit right before we were to get into this about different things that we wanted to make sure that we we're clear on with when we're talking about bugs and diseases and why would why would bugs and diseases be more prevalent this time of year? What'd you say, Carmen? Um, I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh for springtime, in a lot of places, there's a lot of rain, there's a lot of humidity kind of coming back in. So there's a and the temperatures are warming up. So that's like prime real estate for funguses. Um, things just start to, you know grow and reproduce as the temperatures increase. And then with all the new growth coming on uh, plants in the spring, um, a lot of bugs really are hungry and they tend to to start showing up this time of year, just um, how their life cycles go. And with all that new foliage out, um, there's just, there's a lot for bugs to, to go after. So um, yeah, after a nice long winter dormant period where usually you can take a break from from some spraying, not necessarily all spraying, depending where you live. Uh, springtime is probably one of our biggest seasons for pest management, disease management in the yard. Yeah, um, because just like you were saying, everything's dormant. And then as soon as the temperatures come up and everything's starting to wake up, 
everything wakes up literally everything um, bugs fungus uh and i think most of what we're worried about just kind of breaks down i mean would you say it kind of breaks down into those two categories like insects and funguses are there other things we need to look out for yeah there's um there's bacterial issues and viruses as well but i think the two biggest ones that we see the most uh are are funguses and insects um some of the bacterial issues um can show up but they're it's less it's it's not as obvious um and it's not as as prevalent as those other two mm-hmm. um and i'm trying to think about it's all it's all going to be very species specific and um and and like range like mm-hmm. w- what bugs are what funguses or what like you said diseases or or uh bacterias would show up and like for instance like right now in the pacific not in the pacific northwest i'm not there you are uh in the <laughs> in the southeastern states where i'm at there's a lot of uh caterpillars so we have a lot oh, yeah. of the i mean it's one of my favorite caterpillars and it because it turns into one of my favorite uh butterflies is uh is the comma or the question mark butterfly oh yeah it, it's little caterpillars a little like it looks like a little stinging caterpillar and I have a lot of winged elm and a lot of other just like American elm, Chinese elm. And that's kind of like their host plant. That's one of their favorite plants to munch on. So I've just been finding those by, I mean, I could make, I could get little pails, like little, little pail you bring to the beach, like, you know, mm-hmm. play in the sand, like a pail load, not a bucket load. I mean, I don't have that many of them, but there's a good, there's a good <laughs> quality, there's a, <laughs> a pail load of caterpillars. Uh, but no, they're, uh, there's a good bit of them. And I feel bad spraying them. So I have a tendency to remove them by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been feeding a few of them to my pitcher plant, but other ones have survived because I'll remove them. Mm-hmm. Um, some caterpillars will also, I have one hanging off my European, my European olive that's starting to go into metaphor, metamorphosis. Ooh. And I'm just like, he's not really doing anything. And I'm just yeah. letting him chill. Cool. Um, so that's that's one of the concerns that I hear about with spraying and stuff. I mean, it might mm-hmm. be a topic that might be it might kind of lead us off the rails a little bit too soon. Oh, let's from, go off the rails. Uh, <laughs> well, like about <laughs> pollinators versus right. the bonsai person who's right. just brought those because there's there's is there a difference between would you say broadcast spraying versus yeah like, yeah so like how do you For do sure. those treatments to make sure. Like, I'm. Is there any way to to help our pollinators, or is it kind of tougher than we think? Well, I think that you brought up a really good point that you don't always have to spray. You can just do mechanical removal. You can go around, and if you have the time, or if you don't have too many of a specific insect, you can just physically remove them and either kill them or just relocate them, depending on what it is and. Um, that kind of thing. I mean, if it's an invasive insect, that's one thing. If it's a a native, then probably if you have the time and energy to rehome them, then that's that's pretty good. Um, but yeah, <laughs> this one this one is off the rails. But um, yeah, it's a you wanna, little let's come back to let's come back to this one because I I think let's talk more just about um identifications and stuff about stuff. Yeah, the general stuff first, and then then we'll get into the general stuff hot takes yeah um yeah the yeah so i guess there is hot takes of that 
There's a lot of hot takes in, uh, oh, in pesticides and and, and uh, fungicides. Mm-hmm. And I remember the last time I was at the garden, we were we were going through the intensives, and it was something. There was a question brought up about how how technically a fungicide is also in the insecticide category. Was that? Oh no! So it, it's um so pesticides are the general category, pesticides. and that includes yeah. So pesticides cover insecticides, fungicides bactericides, miticide, all of the all of the kinds of pests, whether it's insect or pathogen, falls into pesticide. And then um within pesticide, you can then pull out like, okay, is it an insecticide? So is it insect specific? Is it a fungicide, a miticide, of you know, all the different categories under there. But technically, yeah, um all of those things fall into the the range of or the the name of pesticide. Yeah. And I I don't know if it's extremely important i mean it's just, i guess that's kind of more like a little fun mm. fact yeah it's just one of those category things that may or you know may be helpful to some folks to understand the classifications so i'm seeing like like right now i'm kind of working with a couple of private collections and even stuff at the nursery there's uh i've like on a trident maple we're seeing leaves of brown tips or we'll, mm-hmm. or we're seeing um leaves that didn't fully extend that just suddenly looked like they burned off and i think there's something that we could kind of we could try to there's not really many visuals that we can give through a podcast but we yeah. can kind of try to describe it the best we can uh but for different signs like on a deciduous tree for instance like if you're seeing brown tips on the leaves so like let's say that you have brand new leaves come out uh trident maple is a great example because it's very vigorous so the leaves extend pretty quickly they're very strong plants so when it comes out and then the edges of your leaves are turning brown what what you do you usually look for what kind of indication do you go for for that um generally i don't think that's an insect that would to me would either be um some kind of pathogen, so a fungus or a bacteria, or um, just a, a cultural issue, so overwatering or underwatering, um, mm. rather than a bug. So at that point, that's I can I can narrow it down that far, but without seeing photos and knowing more, it would be hard to to pinpoint. Yeah. So without being able to see a photo, but but just like awful light descriptions, is there are there categories that you could you could simplify it. So let's say someone's going out looking there at their collection mm-hmm. and they're saying, I'm oh, sorry. Um, are the leaves burnt looking like, do they have spots or, or do they look like they've been chewed on or are they mm-hmm. damaged in some way or, or are they distorted? I've seen things with like distorted oh, leaves yeah. too. That can be mm-hmm. a really big indicator of some. So is there like an, is there a way to break it down into an easier kind of like, so like you have a category of this is what the yeah. leaf looks like, and then it's spider webs down. You have a tier yeah. system. Yeah. Um, I don't know that there's anything that can pinpoint it that well, but I would say in general, if you're seeing something on your leaf or your needle or your trunk that looks um like uh off color, like um if there's like orange spots on the underside of your leaf, if there's something that's a little bit raised or looks a little bit dusty or fuzzy, that could be a fungus. Um, but then again, funguses could also appear as 
um, discolored streaks along, you know, the bark or the stem, or even just brown spots on your leaves. Um, but generally, if you're, I feel like if you're physically seeing something on your plant, um, that that can generally be a fungus. And then if you're seeing some kind of mechanical damage on your leaves, so holes in it, or the leaf looks thin in certain spots, or it's been chewed off. Um, that's definitely an insect, but, but the leaf curl, which is an interesting that you thing you, you mentioned, that's a tricky one because that can either be an insect or some kind of, of pathogen. There's disease, certain diseases that will cause that kind of curling, but also there's certain insects that will cause that kind of curling. So, um, once you see you have a problem, usually you have to take it a step further and take your, your leaf or your needle or whatever, and look at it closely, look at it under a microscope or a magnifying lens. Or, um, <clears throat> if you, if you're really stumped, um, you can send it into a lab for, for pest ID. Mm -hmm. And there's, a uh, there are great resources mm -hmm. online. Um, I know, are there, I know there's groups like forums and stuff, but would you say there's a pretty reliable source, like maybe like a university or or a pest identification? Yeah, uh, I think if you're going to look online, um, check out the ag universities. So like University, I think of Minnesota has an extension. Um, so universities, they have these things called extensions. Um, it's like extension agents, and usually they'll um, identify uh pests, diseases, um, give you some help with agriculture, horticulture, whatever. Um, but like University of Minnesota, University of Michigan, I think University of Pennsylvania, maybe. Um, but their web pages are pretty good for if you're looking for disease identification or how to treat it. Um, there's also something online called the Pacific Northwest Disease Handbook. And I've used that as a reference quite a bit. It covers, you know, more than just what's in the Pacific Northwest. I think it just happened to be created out here. Um, so that's a really good resource too. Um, when I used to work at a retail garden center, people would bring bits of their plant in for to like the info desk to see if somebody there could identify it. So that's an option for you. Mm. Um, and then if, if you don't have anywhere local, you feel you can go, if the internet fails you, there are disease labs that you can pay a fee and mail it to them. Um, and they'll send you back a, a disease report and, you know, what you can do to take care of the problem. Yeah. Um, I would be careful about online forums where, where people are kind of sharing images and then just kind of taking shots at what the disease could be. And then just giving you whatever sounds right as far as treatment goes, mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes some plants, depending on species, may not jive with what you dump onto it or what you spray on it. Um, Absolutely. And so uh, disease and pest control is something that I know a lot of beginners who are just getting into it and they're like, my tree's healthy. I'm I'm starting to feel like I'm getting a grasp of keeping it alive and things are going good. I mean, all my 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 shoots are extending out. Uh, we're getting lignification and then something weird happens. And it is a very it's a very uh, it's a very kind of a scary place to go into with your bone side because you're like, wait, I'm supposed to keep this thing alive for X amount of years. 
you know, whether you your goal is to keep it alive for the rest of your life or you want to grow it for somebody and gift it to someone, whatever your your goal is with your bonsai, it's always scary. It's like, what if a disease or something comes along, or a bug comes along and wipes this thing out? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, it should be something in the back of your mind as a bonsai practitioner. Uh, we do need to be very forward thinking about it. And I think preparation, it like er, much earlier on is better. Um, mm-hmm. just learning. And I think uh, what goes along, what, what went a long way for me once I started like going through the first couple of years and my trees were suffering with things that I just wasn't identifying properly. And I was just kind of guesswork throwing chemicals at them. And, um, and, and I finally just got down to it. I was like, what species is this? You know, that that's one of the things that really helped me in the past was, okay. Uh, for instance, uh, there's Cartagus, uh, Martiali that grows here. That's a uh, parsley hawthorn. Mm-hmm. And we're just, I'm just getting this disease on it that it's like, it's, it's like a triangulate, uh, fungus that gets onto the leaf and it literally mm-hmm. looks like little, like diamond shaped spots. Ooh. Is it orange? Yes. Cedar apple rest. It could be that too, huh? <laughs> what, 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 what do you have it? What do you it, think it is? They, I, I looked up the the species Latin nomenclature mm-hmm. on it and looked up the spot, like the leaf blighting and spot that it has. Yeah. And it gave me a, it gave me a species of fungus that only attacks that tree. Oh, that's probably it then. Cause cedar apple rust is on literally everything. But if it's yeah. that specific with a diamond shape, then there you go. Yeah. And that's one of the things that just kind of clicked. And then I got real sad because that fungus attacks that tree and it it's relentless it's very hard mm-hmm. to treat and it kills entire branches yeah uh it could kill entire trunks yeah. um cedar apple rust that's an interesting one um oh pardon me and so let's talk about diseases that are not the plant's fault it's it's um <laughs> i know yeah it sounds kind of crude to say it's all our fault so apps for instance uh cedar apple rust uh-huh what what is that oh god that's a fun one so there are certain um so i'm gonna start way back with this one and say that one of the most important things that you need to know when you're treating one of these diseases is what the disease life cycle is and cedar apple rust is a great example because it actually has two hosts so cedars um which isn't necessarily just cedar it can go on to junipers it can go on to a lot of different conifers and then apples um, so hawthorns um, really anything in the rosaceous family and the way the disease cycle works is it alternates between two of these hosts um, kind of back and forth so if you have junipers and some kind something from the rosaceous family in your bonsai yard one of them might have it it might they might toss it back and forth um, but that's one of those situations where you kind of have to treat you have to treat both hosts or you're not really going to get anywhere with it. So um, this is one of those things where understanding the the disease and the life cycle of the disease is is really key. Is uh, is the rust also one of the things where I was told by somebody that if you take the leaves that drop from the tree and they hit the soil, you need to remove them completely. Yeah. So and, yeah, go ahead. Um, a lot of these 
funguses especially will live over winter in your soil. And so probably one of the best things that you can do to prevent disease in your bonsai yard is to keep it clean. So <laughs> it's really like 101 is keep leaves off your off the ground, keep leaves out of your pots, um, leaves that have fallen, um, mm -hmm. keep stuff up off the ground if you can help it. Um, uh, clean your tools. Um, make sure there's good airflow. Uh, even something as simple as don't let the your hose head sit on the ground where it could t touch a disease mm -hmm. that's on the ground. Like keep it up on your bench. Um, so just like general cleanliness of your bonsai yard and your tools is going to, it's like step number one to just preventing some of these diseases. But yeah, leaf removal is super important, especially um, on something that gets a lot of funguses. Yeah. Um, that was a hard, a hard truth that I had to learn later on. Like, cause for a little mm -hmm. while there, I'm just running my bonsai in the first years that I'm doing it just as backyard, backyard interest plants. I was, mm -hmm. I was trying bonsai and I knew that I wasn't doing it a hundred percent, but the cleaning, the cleanliness factor, it's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't let my bonsai collection sit underneath a, a live oak that sheds 50% mm. of its canopy every year. Yeah. Um, maybe I shouldn't have, you know, like my benches growing mildew and, and visible funguses on the bench itself. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, cleaning up your trees, that's a great point. And it wasn't, it wasn't very obvious to me until a little later on that, and I love deciduous trees that when those leaves fall off your deciduous tree, clear them from your pot. Don't let them mm -hmm. mulch. Um, especially if you're, you have a tree that's dealing with issues. Yeah. Cause, mm -hmm. uh, some of those leaves will fall the fungus. You're just giving the fungus another chance. It's going to come back from the grave, you know, like, yeah. um, so, and a lot of those funguses there, it's true to say that, that it's okay. So my plant anatomy and the way that the xylem and phloem works is not exactly keyed in. You probably know it a little bit better than I do. But uh, maybe, maybe <laughs> I forgot about, a lot of stuff since college. <laughs> yeah, that's what college is for. Oh, um, yeah. uh, so it's kind of like how it becomes part of their of their makeup, almost like mm -hmm. not their DNA makeup, but like, yeah, when a fungus is in a plant's system or, or disease, it becomes part of that. It's a pathogen at that point. Mm -hmm. So when it produces new growth, it's going to inevitably come out in that new growth. Correct. It depends what it is. So if it's a like a fungus that just resides kind of on the outside of the plant, um, then that's not really an issue. If you have something like fire blight, which is a, a bacterium that um, that does become a systemic issue, some of the bacterial cankers are also a problem like this. Some of the funguses, um, I think it's, uh, I was looking at one the other day, Cytosporia canker or something it's a fungus that does canker. become a systemic issue yeah canker it sounds, that awful. sounds awful it, sounds it, really it is nasty. <laughs> cankers are bad you don't want them but yeah those are that's something that will um move throughout your plant so when you when you read about treating those there's not really a very good treatment for it either um but they'll often say prune if you're doing like a, a fruit tree prune a foot below where that issue is so you're hopefully cutting out as much of it as you can but on something like a bonsai if it's on your trunk you can't really cut 
your whole trunk off. So <laughs> kind yeah. of defeats the purpose. Um, but yeah, so some of these are systemic. Um, That's the word I think I should yeah, use. Systemic yeah. pathogens. <laughs> um, and the good news is there are some systemic pesticides, but some of them, especially the funguses, there's not really a whole lot of, there's, there's not really a good that I'm aware of systemic fungicide. There's some that have some properties like that, but Mm. not, not like the insecticides. We figured out the insecticide thing, but um, yeah. So sorry, I'm talking a lot to, but to answer your question, yes, sometimes (laughs) it's a systemic problem. (laughs) We're, we're literally here to talk Carmen. I think you're doing fine. Okay. Um, Thank you. (laughs) The, uh, the systemic insecticides are, are interesting to me. So you, I mean, would you say that's one of the better ways to treat? I mean, and systemic insecticides are going to be more for um, like leaf, like leaf cutters. I'm guessing, uh, um, or sap sucking bugs. What do you What do you think? They'll kill everything, um, and that's part of the problem that people have with them. Um, but and so and even I think a bug we'll... existing like on the soil surface or on the trunk. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Um, (laughs) So systemic pesticides are absorbed by the plant. So when you put them in, um, we often do a soil drench and a spray so that we get both like a topical application as well as um, into the root zone. And then the plant sucks it up and it becomes part of that plant for however long that pesticide lasts. So something like safari or the Bayer, like three in one. So imidacloprid um, and some of these other ones, they'll remain in the plant. So any anything that eats that plant that is affected by that chemical will then die. Um, mm-hmm. So this can be something like an aphid. It can be scale. It can be something, a caterpillar. So something that would just do some mechanical damage on the outside. But the real, um, this, this one is really, a good pesticide to use for something like borers because borers, you can't see them. Mm. Um, usually when you notice that they're there, it's too late. Um, but they'll, they'll eat the the living tissue underneath the bark. And if the tree has been treated, they'll eat that tissue, but the tissue's poisonous. And so they'll die. Um, that was, that was one of the questions that was kind of, was kind of just uh, moving around in my thoughts while we were talking mm-hmm. about, what bugs would be affected by what and one of those is borers and um we don't have a lot of issues with borers here i know they're a lot more of an issue with um alpine species Mm -hmm. and i didn't know that i didn't know if you treat it with systemic that it could it could potentially knock out a borer Mm -hmm. um but borers are are they only worried about the live tissues uh yeah. So they, they live, they eat the live tissue of the tree and um, they can easily girdle. Uh, so on some, some cases it's good because it creates a nice shari line, but other times they mm-hmm. can girdle a branch or trunk and kill off a whole section of the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So they can be really problematic. It's really interesting out here, out West, the, the Alpine species are really affected. The conifers are really affected, but I've noticed back East, it's more the the rosaceous stuff, so like apples and cherries and apricots, hmm. have have a borer problem more so than our conifers. So, um, different kinds of borers affect different areas. 
so you've you've seen cases where you you'll have like a big dead section in a trunk or a, mm-hmm. or a branch will start to die like on a, a rosacea mm-hmm. yeah um and the and that family includes um all the apples obviously and i didn't know it was the hawthorns either i was kind of yep. cheese them well that it does make sense to me because it it practically is a tiny rose white yeah. roses on them um but yeah anyway and 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 also hawthorns have like a little bit of a looks like a little tiny apple makes mm-hmm. sense so yeah but um so when it comes to breaking down what practices we should take during the springtime um mm-hmm. what what's a good recommendation for which chemicals would be just like a like this these are the ones you're just going to use uh they're just yeah. a good preparation or like you should just have these in your your armory of pesticides mm-hmm. and stuff and how often would you use them yeah so that's a, a great question because there's one of the the hot takes the debates is do you spray preventatively so before there's a problem or just curatively so once mm-hmm. you see a problem and i think a lot of that depends on um really how kind of where you are you know in your bonsai journey like do you have really expensive high quality trees that you're you know you're you've spent years building and growing and um all of this or do you have uh if it's a business then obviously that's your livelihood so in those cases i think preventative spraying can be really really helpful especially if you know that there is a problem in your area already so um, for example, here we know that we have juniper tip blights. We know that we have um, certain needle casts that hit the pines this time of year, um, or we know that it's going to be borer season soon. So we'll do some preventative spraying this time of year because we know those problems are are coming. And especially with the borers, since they're so hard to see, um, we'll go ahead and preventatively treat all of the trees that could possibly get that issue with a systemic insecticide. Um, But a lot of the other things, a lot of the other deciduous trees in the yard that don't have these, you know, systemic problems that we see year after year after year all the time, we'll often wait and do a curative spray if we see something like if aphids pop up, you know, when there's a lot of fresh growth or if we see a caterpillar problem or, something like that that kind of comes along later in the season. We'll just, once we notice that, then we'll go ahead and and take care of the problem rather Mm -hmm. than um, preventative uh, spraying. Okay. So what what chemicals chemicals, in particular um, would you recommend? Sure. So we use a couple things for um, insecticide, systemic insecticide. We use the Bayer, which is imidacloprid, and we use Safari. And these will persist in the plant usually for like the label will say, um, I think it's three to four months, something along those lines. So we usually treat um, this time of year and then again, kind of later in the growing season. So it's a two to three time per year application um, to protect those plants from borers. And it has the added benefit of also, you know, whatever else could attack it um, will eat the poisoned plant and then die. So 
uh, that's helpful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then for, for fungicide, um, there's so many different funguses. You kind of have to know what you are treating, um, in order to get the right fungicide, we use Cleary's 3336 and Dacanil pretty often um, mm, for the different the truth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for the different needle casts and tip lights. Um, but like there's some some of the the tip lights on junipers, Dacanil doesn't take care of those, so you have to, to do Cleary. So you kind of have to know what you're working with um, and uh, this will be the first time of many times I'll say this, but you have to read the label of your pesticide because it will tell you what it will and what it will do. So if, if what you have isn't on the label, it's not going to do what you want it to do. So you can spray mm. Dacanil on, you know, something and it, it'll do nothing. So, um, read your label, but then yeah. there's stuff, <laughs> there's stuff like a, a copper insect or fungicide that, um, it's more broad spectrum. So it'll kind of get almost anything. Um, but then you're spraying a heavy metal. So, you know, that's one of those that, you know, I mean, all of them, you, you should probably use sparingly if you can help it. Um, and one of the things with the, the fungicide too, is that if you spray, if you spray that copper, for instance, mm -hmm. there's not, always bad funguses so you could right. upset the ecosystem in your pot in your soil exactly. yeah. and so yeah sparingly and reading the label and targeting diseases and funguses is a good point mm -hmm. um, well this goes back to the to the put off discussion earlier of mm -hmm. um of our pollinators know, hurting pollinators yeah so use your pesticides sparingly um, target what you are fighting. Don't just spray imidacloprid over your entire yard and because <laughs> it'll kill, it'll kill all the stuff, good, the good and the bad. Yeah. Um, but if you have something, if you have a really valuable tree, you know, sometimes, and you're just, you know, trying to target that plant, putting a really, you know, bad insecticide on it is not going to hurt you know, the pollinator population, mm -hmm. you know, that, that much. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So some preventative, uh, and I've, and I've, I've heard some people say they'll spray for things once a month. Mm -hmm. Um, you're, you're like, you were saying some of the labels say that they'll last from three to four months, which, yeah, you know, like, and, and you made a good point earlier with, um, with like, is this a high-end garden, like where, where you're apprenticing now, or is this mm -hmm. a business like I'm running um, over here? And in a business stand, at a st business standpoint, preventative spraying is kind of just the way we go about it. Mm -hmm. And it and it's it's kind of an unfortunate way to go about it, but you have to though. I mean, it's yeah. it's if you can't sell your crop, then yeah, you're gonna go out of business. And, and here it's like. I can't pick through every single tree like you can. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and even here, it's like, you know, we have some of these trees that are collected and are hundreds of years old. And it would be a shame if, you know, it, if it died in our care after we've pulled it down off a mountain or whatever. So it's like, 
it feels like a responsibility to go ahead and make sure that that we take care of that plant. Mm. Um, yeah. So, oh, but one other quick thing about systemic insecticides, um, mm -hmm. especially if you're worried about bees and pollinators, is uh, if you have something that blooms, wait until after it's done blooming and then mm -hmm. treat it, because then um, you won't run into that problem. It won't it won't hurt your bees because there's no flowers for the bees. Um, but if you have something like chojubai, then you're kind of screwed because they just bloom all the time. Maybe they bloom constantly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we try, you can try to not use it on that, but you know, sometimes I'm you have curious, to. curious, is there a way to let your, your blooming plants bloom and then, cause the bees will come visit and not just mm -hmm. bees, but like a lot of things come by. I mean, wasps, yeah. regular flies, uh, yeah. just about anything will get in there and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and do the do the business but um but that's it, it usually comes the wave of pests come after the flowers are kind of fully set is that correct yeah. because the flowers uh, attract yeah. the good and the bad yeah I mean, it it really depends on on what you're what you're fighting mm -hmm. um because some things you know don't really care time of year if it's a fungus it's going to be there regardless of time of year but then you're not spraying insecticide but the fun this is getting messy because sometimes fungicides will kill bugs too so I, uh yeah uh, <laughs> i mean well <laughs> just it, plant it, a really big pollinator garden like across your yard so they'll all go over there and then you yeah. don't feel bad about spraying your bonsai because most of your pollinators are over in the other side of your garden yeah they're gonna find your pollinator garden much more attractive <laughs> Um, like that's what we're doing over here. I'm trying to organize my own personal garden in the back oh, here. Me and Caitlin are trying to put together a pollinator, uh, a pollinator garden. Um, it's been unsuccessful because of that last, that late freeze that we just had. Oh God. Yeah. Um, oh, that's one thing. Uh, I, I remember talking with, uh, with Jonas a little while back on one of the episodes and he was joking with, uh, it was kind of joking, but at the same time it was like. Uh, he was like, we just talk about the weather just too often on oh, these yeah. bonsai it's podcasts. So, it's so yeah. important, though. You have to talk about the weather. <laughs> it's so important. So in case some of y'all didn't know, um, down in southeast Louisiana, I don't know if this is going to pertain to all the Gulf Coast and everything over on our side, um, United States, of course, um, we get late frosts this time of year. So we had a late frost to, well, no, that was a week ago. That was last weekend. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because my even my bald cypresses are burned mm. on the tips, Ooh. and they're tough. They're very tough plants. And wow. what happened was that we had we had the cold days let off for a little bit, and then all of a sudden it was eighty five degrees. One day it was ninety, and then all the trees were like, "Hell yeah!" And they just started going for it. Oh no! And uh, all green on green tips. Nothing got to mm. the to lignification. Nothing hardened off, and everything got burned. <sighs> Oh no. And so, I mean, it happens. We protected as yeah. much as we could. And so that was that kind of goes back on the 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 pest and, and uh funguses thing is that uh I mentioned like some things could be not related that you could look mm -hmm. at and be like, oh no, uh my plants got X disease because it's it's a different color and the tips are burned. Weather really could contribute to it too. And we had this frost, I'm like. I'm sorry, bald cypresses. Some of y'all are just too massive and we just don't have the greenhouse yeah. space for you guys. Um, and then some of the elms, it was kind of funny. The Chinese elms. They don't dude, those, seem to care. They, no, they don't care at all. They're like, well, whatever. <laughs> yeah. 
they're they're out there like semi. Are they even real trees? They're like. Woo. I think they're they're just artificial they're trees that yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that have like a button at the bottom that pushes the play doh through the through the little <laughs> slots that like shoots out and looks like a leaf at the end. They're just fake. They're 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 from another planet because mm-hmm. they they come out early like they could be a fully tropical plant in some instances. Like uh-huh. if you don't give them a dormancy, they just keep going. <laughs> and and then like the leaves don't fall off and it gets cold the next day and the leaves just stay on. And you're like, mm-hmm. what is this thing's issue? You know, like um, <laughs> it's not like it has an issue. It's just strange because like the cypresses will show it. The cypresses will just the leaves of bronze get all weird looking and then they'll mm-hmm. drop and. I've got burnt tips, uh, but yeah, the there was a there was a late frost. This is just kind of going back on my whole complaint about Louisiana weather. Um, for for the Portland area, was there anything weird that happened with y'all recently? Um, well, I just had to move a bunch of trees back into the greenhouse because we're going to hit like thirty two overnight this weekend. So mm. there was snow this morning. It was really strange, but yeah, like you have to really with the sun out or something. Yeah, you were one of those. Um, it hailed <laughs> yesterday in between sunshine, so I don't know. It was weird, but um, every time I go there, it's a it's weird. It's weather. it's only it's only my experience because I I usually have downtime in like in the the winter and mm-hmm. early spring seasons to go visit you guys, and then like yeah. I'm only seeing like snow, hail. I mean, it's it's always <laughs> overcast there, and I'm just like. Wow, it's just really sad here all the time. Like, um, but there are there are moments when it's actually sunny in Portland, right? Yeah, it's kind of sunny right now. And then the whole I'm summer. Joking, but... the, the summer is awful. It's like, I mean, if you like summer, then it's great. But if you don't like summer, then yeah. Sorry. Louisiana's summer is similar to that. We yeah. uh we usually come out of the winter with a super dry spell. Like mm. it just it just doesn't rain for a while and then it'll get yeah. really cold and all of a sudden it'll start pouring and then we'll have showers and it will just be and, and and like I feel kind of like grateful for it sometimes because I'll get up, go to water my trees and I'm like, I don't have to water my trees and it's like 60 degrees all day. That's nice. Mm, and then mm-hmm. it's followed by some of the most brutal summers. Yeah. Um just a hundred degrees, a hundred percent humidity, Ugh. um, and sometimes more than a hundred. But yeah, yeah. Just I, I think a lot of people who do bonsai, we get we start becoming like uh, small time meteorologists in a way. Oh yeah, yeah. You're <laughs> watching the weather, like you get weather alerts on your phone, like your temperature sensors go off at a certain time. I oh. still sometimes get push notifications from the temperature sensors in Michigan. I'm like, why is this coming up my phone still? I gotta disconnect that somehow. We anyway, just put, we put like a digital uh, weather cock, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just said that word on the podcast. I'm so sorry, <laughs> but it, but it, it gets sends me push notifications all the time. Uh huh. And I'm like, oh, there's there's light. There's a lightning strike uh, 20 miles away from the nursery. Wonderful. I don't know why I need to know this, but <laughs> I know it it's now. Important that you know. It gives me weird know. readouts like that, but when it's Very raining. Strange. And I want to know more when the wind's kicking up. Oh, you that know, would be nice to know. Yeah, because yeah. the wind could, I, I'm, I'm sure it's the same there mm-hmm. over where you're at. Just the sometimes you'll just get these gusts out of nowhere. Yeah, out of nowhere. Uh, and it, I guess there's no way to really predict that. Uh, but <laughs> but you guys are pretty adamant about tying y'all's trees down to the benches, yeah. which is something that I, I learned the hard way. Um, but yeah, I'm glad I went up there and learned that and then started applying it. <laughs> Wow, this actually works. 
my tree's only fallen down like three times this 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 spring but you know whatever um <laughs> yeah i haven't had anything fall off a bench this year thank goodness yeah uh so far i've, I've had a couple of moments where i've been anxious for my literati mm-hmm. um but the last time I had something seriously blow down was during um it wasn't even the hurricane last year. It was it was a bald cypress that weighs easily a hundred pounds by itself and it just was like really overgrown because mm. we had bad weather and it took off. And that's the funny thing is the when we have bad weather, because of the, the sudden temperature changes, like it eases off and some of the trees will oh, come yeah. out of summer dormancy and they'll start they're start kicking they're start kicking it. They're like, wow, it's the, I'm gonna grow like four four foot shoots and this guy became like a wind sail some this bald cypress just he blew over in a 60 mile an hour gust and i was like oh, oh my gosh. god and he was the only one that fell down um and everything else i had dropped down to the ground because mm-hmm. i was like this tree's falling down this tree's falling because i knew the bad weather was coming but yeah and you're like this that... giant tree will be fine and yeah then and, he, the giant and he was tree not falls over <laughs> yeah sometimes he... it's the ones you least expect yeah i mean it fell over and the top, I mean, well, the, the side that was facing upwards after was mm-hmm. sheared. All the leaves were blown off. It was like, well, okay. But uh, <laughs> it, it like it blanketed other trees as it fell on top of them. And oh the branches gosh. like intricately like landed around them where it didn't break anything. Oh, but it, wow. Yeah, it was like a little weird Tetris thing. It just fell into place. And I was like, oh, this was kind of good. But uh, <laughs> luckily, bald cypresses can be defoliated and readjusted. Um, so... Anyway, it sounds like I need to go into uh, like a bald cypress care guide thing again. I had some episodes. Yeah. <laughs> you sound super excited. You're like, yeah. oh, great. A species I don't get to play there with. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> now, uh, me and Nate Murray did some episodes earlier on. This is probably almost two years ago now. And uh, I, I have this bald cypress care guide thing that I put together. And we were reading through it. And I wrote like this intricate list of collection of of other experiences from other people who work with them in our area around the Gulf Coast area. And we just never finished it. Um, and I thought that was that would be an interesting thing to do for the podcast mm-hmm. in the future is to put together a nice detailed care guide for certain popular species. Yeah, uh, that me and you and Mike could build together and do stuff like That'd that. That'd be great. That would be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it always has some we always we're always trying to brew things up uh, here for you for the listeners. Y'all, oh, this yeah. is all for y'all. That we're gonna mm-hmm. just talk about it just blatantly. On, you know. We're just gonna, yeah, yeah, we're just gonna tangent and let you know what's on our mind. Yeah, all the time. Um, I mean, whatever. <laughs> um, so back to, back to to bonsai. I mean, it's all bonsai related. It's, it's all, all bonsai. It's all bonsai adjacent. But um, yeah. So I think we have some time to do a couple of oh oh questions. hold on. I need to get on one more soapbox. Oh 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 yeah. Go ahead. Um, I'm sure that one listener that wanted their question answers gonna forgive you. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay. What okay. is it? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Wear protection mm, mm, when mm. you're spraying pesticides. Um, so okay. Okay. You might. Jesus. <laughs> oh, so <laughs> this is a general audiences podcast, Carmen. I said when spraying pesticides yeah um so it's very important to read your labels and the other thing that you're going to find on your labels besides how often you should spray your pesticide and what you should spray it on and what your pesticide does is the kind of personal protection equipment that you could also wear to protect yourself from poisoning yourself so definitely invest 
PPE. Yes. <laughs> invest, in- <laughs> invest in your PPE. Invest in your PPE. Get yourself a good old pair of chemical resistant gloves and chemical resistant shoes and a chemical resistant apron or mm. hazmat suit and a handy dandy little half face respirator is always good because whether or not you're spraying pesticide or if you live in the Pacific Northwest and the world is on fire, you can get a lot of use out of it. Yeah. Um, so I'll definitely say that. And then one other, other quick thing about <laughs> pesticides. Okay. I just want just one other, one other thing. Um, uh, let me think. Uh-oh. Most of the state's Department of Natural Resources have mm. pesticide applicator licensing programs. Um, a lot of their information is online for free, so you don't actually have to pay for the study guides or pay to actually go take the test and get your license with for accessing the, um, the study materials. And so those are going to run you through all the different terminology, all the different pests and diseases, kinds of chemicals, how to mix, how to wear PPE, what all the little warning signs mean, all that stuff. So um, I've been a pesticide applicator for like a decade. And um, I would definitely recommend if this is something you're going to be doing a lot of either getting your license or just like looking into the study materials and reading through them so that you know what you're doing. Um, Because these things... uh, they can be harmful. Can, they can be really dangerous. Mm-hmm. So yeah, even investing in like a spill kit or an eye wash kit, you know, just in case you're out there and you get something in your eyeball, like it's, it's maybe it's overkill, but it's one of those things that if you get something on you and, um, you know, that could be bad. So, yeah, I guess if we're going to be recommending to our listeners to start using chemicals and we're going to be very like particular about what's what chemicals to use that can be mm-hmm. corrosive, toxic into any way. Um, yeah. Then, yeah, uh, I didn't think about that. Good thing mm-hmm. you brought it up. And uh, anytime, I'm... <laughs> like you said, ten years of experience. Yeah. No joke. People get sick over time from these things, even. Yeah. Um, so, so even if, like, you know, one time you're not wearing your respirator or whatever, you know, it can add up over time. So, and a lot of this stuff, especially if you're spraying outside, like, you know, it's okay. Just wear, just wear chemical resistant gloves and you'll be fine. But, you know, some of these things, if you're spraying a lot, it doesn't hurt to have a, you know, a a Tyvek suit and a half face respirator just and some safety goggles, you know, just to, to be extra, extra careful. Um, And uh, almost every, I think all the pesticide bottles have poison control numbers on them so if you do hurt yourself you do get something Mm. on yourself call poison control they're really nice i've called them lots so um it's probably not saying much good stuff about how i apply pesticides but you know sometimes you drop a little xeratol on your skin and it hurts so anyway um listener questions yeah yeah (laughs) here we go (laughs) be be safe don't pour chemicals directly onto your bare skin list questions let's go (laughs) directly into the ground oh yeah rinse or yeah like our our concentrate because a lot of those chemicals come in a concentrate and you just if it comes Mm -hmm. open and it pours all over the place yeah you could you you could cause a real big issue big problem yeah yeah Um, Yeah, don't just dump your extra you know down the drain like use it all up use it up dilute it dilute yeah. it triple yeah. rinse your containers we could do a yeah. whole other thing on pesticide safety yeah we'll we'll, we'll read your we'll label read, 
Read your label. <laughs> Wear protection. We'll, okay. We'll uh we'll come back to that. I mean, <laughs> Carmen's very passionate about about protecting herself from uh from insecticides and fungicides. So I just want to let everybody know. Uh but yeah. So good. Step good. off I'm, my soapbox now. I'm I'm glad you got that one. Um, thank you. I feel better now that I got it out of my system. <laughs> Uh, so listener questions we're finally here we've arrived uh let's see if we can get one or two in on this one um so i had one that was uh brought to us by one of our bonsai best buds joel jenkins and uh joel and i was gonna i was gonna kind of let let you take this one because you missed that on uh on answering is what's something you have learned along your boneside journey that you wish you had known earlier. I know you missed that episode where me and Mike mm. had talked about some stuff, but uh, yeah. just just a few things. What do you think? Hmm. I know it's a big that's a big head scratcher. It is. I I will say that one of the things I learned incorrectly at first was repotting. Um, <clears throat> I didn't learn. I didn't. Yeah. Um, I think knowing how to repot and maintain, you know, the, the, um, the root system of your tree is, you know, one of the most basic things that you can learn in bonsai and, um, you know, why you use, which soil particles you use and why you don't bear root certain things, um, or how frequently you bear root or, you know, all this stuff, um, I wish that I had known that earlier. Um, yeah, learning learning proper repotting techniques and and stuff like that. It there's no there's not a real book out there. You know, there's there are books, but there's no official guide. There's no one out there that's like this is the way. So I know what you right. mean. Yeah, and and like I was learning from people who've done bonsai for a long time, and you know we didn't, I mean, I mean, it wasn't super detrimental to the trees, the way that we were doing it, the trees were fine and lived and, you know, um, but I think that had I been repotting, you know, in a more traditional way with more traditional soils that the trees would have developed faster, um, and stronger overall. So I think, I think that's probably something that I wish I had known sooner. Mm. Um, that would have been really helpful. Yeah, I, I say this a lot, um, time and time again, uh, that whatever's happening down below as far as your root system, can you hear my dog? I can hear your dog. She's, someone's apparently arrived at my house and she's just letting us know that she's there. I mean, that, oh, that, you know, that we, we know that the dog is there. We know that Willow, oh, okay. my blue healer is here, but she has to also know that other people are here. Uh, but anyway, yeah, repotting practices will will really really define something i say a lot uh probably if if people who've listened to a, uh, a lot of our episodes and then i've actually listened to the end and heard me say just my things that i just say over and over is what happens below will reflect what's above um mm-hmm. so if your roots are healthy and everything's doing great and the, and you you would know that you have picked up that tree in the past repotted it and have uh kind of like a car like car goes in for maintenance everything's under the hoods looking great and then when you start it up it should be good to go uh Mm -hmm. it's kind of like with the bonsai like you know those roots are healthy you know there's not any issues no root rot there's diseases that you that you would would see that would cause it to perform badly during the grown season 
So when you put the tree back in the pot and repot it and you feel confident about your practice, boom, should be good to run, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, repotting is something that I feel like a lot of people earlier on are scared, also scared of um, mm-hmm. because it's just really intimidating. But yeah, we can cover more. We can revisit repotting stuff later down the line too. Repotting, yeah. I could talk, I could talk a whole entire just years worth of just repotting episodes and everybody be like, why are we still talking about this? It's, <laughs> it's, it is, it's an extremely important thing in our, in our outside practice. Yeah. So yeah. Um, let's, let's answer, uh, let's answer one more and then let's see if we can get to the critique. We, uh, we had a critique that we'll go over a little bit in just a moment. Let's see. This should be a pretty uh, straightforward one. We got one from Ricky. Ricky. Uh, another one of our, I believe is another one of our uh, our bonsai best buds. I be, the bonsai best buds that kind of pushes through these names that are not really their names, whatever they signed up with Patreon to. But I believe he is. So uh, uh, this is pretty straightforward. When is it that you suggest it would be the best time to take or begin an air layer? To take an air layer? Yep. Um, I think I answered this one in another yeah. episode with Mike or something, or maybe we were all talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends on the species too mm-hmm. and the time of year. But yeah. what do you, what do you see? I, I usually see like right after, uh, right after first flush. Yeah. Almost trees. Yeah. Although I've, I've done them. Let me try to remember. Yeah. I've done them in the spring. Um, we actually did one in the late winter too. So over the dormant season, but I think generally speaking sometime after your first flush is when you're going to get your best results mm-hmm. and then conifer ever broadleaf evergreen deciduous tropicals does that kind of alter paths a little bit for all those for air layers because mm. i know on tropicals you can do it almost any time of the year as long as it's nice and toasty yeah yeah and um deciduous is the one i say more harden off in the spring yeah, I I don't know as much about air layering. Um, I don't know a whole bunch about air layering, except really Ooh. with deciduous. Um, Hot take. Carmen doesn't yeah, know much about I air layering. <laughs> I don't know a whole bunch about <laughs> air layering. Um, but I think during the growing season, it's probably you know going to be your best time just because everything's moving and flowing. So Yeah, you want to get good sap movement. And then whenever you go to sever that line, and the oxins are pushing back um, mm-hmm. your air layer. Once you sever the cambium completely, you remove all the bark in a ring, roughly about inch to two inches, depending on how big your air layer is going to be. I've seen some really big air layers on plants. Uh, in fact, one of our other listeners, Joel, present uh, to me a air layer. He took off of a acerubrum that was nearly okay. four inches across. And I was yeah. like, geez, I'm, you know. Uh, maples, maples will try their best to reconnect themselves so you mm-hmm. got to do a little bit bigger of a, <laughs> yeah, of a removal yeah of a removal and, there yeah uh, try you take, to bridge it take off the bark and then you want to take a uh at, well usually it's not just, just as simple it's not just it's not just take off the bark now and now you've drew, you've completely sketched out the cat now you like drawing like you see how like this you got the steps of like how to draw something it's like draw some circles mm-hmm. and then step two you've drawn a cat and you're like wait what was the step in between there um <laughs> you take your razor blade there you go draw a straight line all the way around your trunk where you're wanting to take your air layer where you want the roots to come out where you want your radials to start to happen and then you go down about an inch or two 
and you and you cut a, a ring around that and then you cut through the middle and peel off the entire ring of bark and then you're going to have your cambium layer is right below that it's going to be white fleshy on most species you take your razor and go back again and you're going to scrape that down till you see the under bark the i mean the under layer of the like the heartwood layer of the tree and you're going to be like oh crap i just killed this thing but if you do this right the tree will probably survive and like carmen said maples will do their their best to just pull the sap across there and just reconnect and heal if there's a slither of hope if there's a slither of that cambium left so usually we pack it with uh sphagnum moss nice and tight uh nice and damp we give it about you know about three inches all on all sides and covering the entire area where you cut uh from top to bottom of that air layer uh and you want to have a an entrance point and an exit point for you to be able to water the moss because mm-hmm. you don't want it to dry out because then it's become useless and the area will probably fail, fail and then in in some cases i've seen uh people take a piece of tin foil um around and just put that but i usually have to use saran wrap and then tin foil because the tin mm-hmm. foil is going to reflect the the heat or light and take the tin foil off pretty easily but the saran wrap is going to hold, hold everything together nice and tight then you take your bonsai wire and you tourniquet top and bottom of that you know, top relatively loose, so you can you know look in there and poke around, see how many roots you got. And I heard the gen- the general rule of thumb is that once you see roots, don't remove the air layer. Once you see roots, you want to remove it when the roots start going crazy and they fill up the bag of whatever you might have going on in there. And then once that's done, once you get a nice robust root system coming off that air layer, then you take your saw and you're going to try to cut wherever you want to plate that little cutting, that little air layer, it's basically a cutting now that's just kind of taken on to the, off the tree. Then you stick that in soil and there you go. Just let it ride out. Might want to greenhouse it depending on the time of the year, or you don't want to overwater it because they're really fresh, fragile roots. They're not really, really good viable roots. They're not strong. So you want to make sure that your, your new air layer, your new tree has a way to stabilize itself. So you don't rip all those roots off on accident or uh, you have a complete failure and the tree just heals the air layer or you cut all the stuff off and you have this big giant ugly bulge <laughs> and you and you can't really start over again it's just a giant mound of scar tissue so your best bet is just to cut it off um so yes it, it yeah it's air layering is not for the faint of heart but when it works it works really good mm-hmm. um you can also use rooting hormone um yeah I don't use it a lot, but is that something that you can? You... It's yeah, we usually use it here. Um, you can we use a liquid rooting hormone on there. Okay. Um, and sometimes instead of like saran wrap, we'll we'll kind of just put a little we'll cut a pot so that it can like kind of fit mm. around there. But it's same concept. So yeah. yeah. You can you cut like a dark. plastic nursery container and like get mm-hmm. a little artsy and cut like hole and get it to hold. It's it's more complicated. The saran wrap tinfoil is much much easier <laughs> yeah straight to the point a lot of nursery trade people do that yeah. um but i've seen some really creative air layer stuff mm-hmm. um so just know your species and stuff and uh yeah time of year um i don't think it's as important as long as there's good sap flow and and mm-hmm. you know you have a long enough growing period to get that to set yeah. um so we're running a little a little long but we'll go into the critique 
And uh, this this critique was brought to us by Joshua Bentley. Um, he's one of our Boneside Best Buds as well. And what we've done recently is we have a, uh, I was invited to a Discord, which was awesome. Uh, thank you guys. And I've gotten some of our listener questions from there. And also uh, this critique. And uh, you you have it pulled up. Wait, I got it on my phone. Mm -hmm. I pulled it up. Oh, wait, where, where did Let's see. He told me that this is a Dawn Redwood, and he will only allow me to critique it if I try to pronounce the nomenclature. Okay. Okay. So I'm pretty familiar with the species. I say the mm -hmm. first part of it all the time, but the second part is is kind of strange. I don't. Do you know? Do you know the nomenclature on this one? I don't remember because uh, I I read it and I but I don't remember what it uh, was. Metasequoia. Ah yes, Metasequoia. What was the other part of the species? Glytroptus biads. Yes. <laughs> right? Am I right? I don't know. Let me look at it. Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to send on. it to you. Okay. <laughs> so I know the first The first part's pretty obvious. Metasequoia. A lot of people could yeah. say metasequoia. Sure. Um, but my, my mispronunciations of words is not uncommon with Latin nomenclature. A lot of the time, these words are just strange, but also it's They're very it's, strange. It's phonetics. I mean, I could just look at the word and put the, the syllables together and kind of give myself some hints of how this might be pronounced. Oh, I found it. OK. Liptostraboides. What's that accent? <laughs> Saboides. No. Glyptos. Stroboides. Stroboides. Glip. Yeah. Glyptostroboides. Metasequoia glyptostroboides. Da da da. So, so yeah, because a boy, like your boy the over there. B-O-I. Boides. Yep. So anyway, so we got a um Dawn Redwood. And he had a before picture, but we're just gonna show the uh on our Instagram feed when this episode drops. You can go check it out at uh Instagram at little things for bonsai people and yeah we have instagram now yeah i uh i had to resurrect the bonsai southeast uh yes and now it's just little things uh but yeah we have a we have a fairly straight trunk and i see some some nabari forming at the bottom here but i'm i'm guessing that we're going for a flat top kind of styling on this tree um now, are you? I, I I've talked long winded about this style for a very long time, um, and it's kind of one of the things that we concentrate on here. But are you familiar with what he's going for, Carmen? Uh, yeah, kind of. A little bit, yeah. You you've mm -hmm. probably I've seen, seen pictures. pictures. Mm -hmm. Um, so based off of the species, so metasequoia or the dawn redwood or the metasequoia. Uh, Glytros Stroboides. Stroboides. Um <laughs> they um they they are very, very close relative to the bald cypress. So I could see this working for this tree. Unfortunately, I'm not entirely familiar with their actual growth habit. Um I know that they were a species that was once assumed to be extinct is the i think that was the lore behind this species they were discovered in japan at one point and then and then propagated and brought back into the world of of horticulture again 
and uh and they do look like a bald cypress in, in some instances they they have some different things going on though the leaf is very fleshy now it sounds like kind of weird to say about a tree but fleshy. a, a flesh <laughs> but a bald cypress's leaves are feather very feathery so like you you take the leaf and you run your finger along the side and it's very much like you would imagine it's soft and it's it's it resembles a a feather um and whereas a a dawn redwood is it it's like that it's the same shape it's not a compound leaf um do you do you remember the official name for the the type of leaves where it's like a stem of a of it is the leaf but it's it's a sectioned off leaf. It's not necessarily compound. Is there a name for that? Uh, I think this one is like a pinnate. It's a pinnate compound, so it looks like a feather. So it's yeah. like, yeah. So it's very, very similar to bald cypress, and it functionally yeah. grows growth habit-wise very similar. Um, but does it mean that it that it is a bald cypress or would be suited for flat top? But it doesn't mean that you can't because it's your bonsai. Um and we're free to do whatever we want as far as styling goes. Unless it's wrong. It it's not <laughs> <Sorry>. wrong. <laughs> don't don't let Carmen critique your flat top. Um no. Just kidding. You can do whatever you want. So my my take, just real quick, I'll let I'll let you uh I didn't mean that this was wrong, by the way. Well, I'm just well, being obnoxious. Sorry. Okay, I'll be okay, quiet now. Okay, Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, before I let you go, just to let you know. That I can critique you know. this, <laughs> critique this tree better <laughs> than you can. Uh, no, the um, the the branching. So whenever I do flat tops, there there's always a dominant piece that comes up, and then below that's going to be your secondary flat top piece. So I see the intention on building that. So that that top leader looks like it's trying to become that for sure. Um, I would definitely. I mean, the chop is a chop. You don't have to fix your chop theoretically until scar tissue really starts to build up and it's trying to heal the wound completely. So I can't really go into being like, fix that chop and get a concave or better, even better for that chop is a convex uh, shape there. So it heals naturally looking. I can't even really say that because it's such an early stage of this because no, what I would do is that branch that comes up as part of your flat top. So you got the very top one, you got the second one that that looks like uh, your your martini glass is what I, call, what I call it shape, which is good. It's a good start or deer antler kind of look. The branch below that, that's where I would chop that tree down for flat top height. Um, not saying go in there and chop your tree back down, but you know, usually whenever I'm doing proportions, yes, you can have a, a long skinny trunk, but if you keep going and going and and the distance becomes too great between the straightness of that and then where you come up into that flat top piece it, it especially with the length of and the, the the coarseness of these branches it kind of takes away from the line too much so it's good to think long and skinny uh and on, on tapered trunk but i would go a lot shorter um down to that branch and then that even where you're reaching up and going to your flat top. It's a little broad for how how slender this tree is, because the long the longer and longer that 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 trunk runs up into the into the distance into the the height of the tree, the shorter the top of that canopy should be. At this height, the the canopy would be like that little tiny branch that's popping out the side on the left side of the trunk. That, in my opinion, that would look more appropriate than what the branches are as far as coarse and thickness up top there. Um, 
And that's just my, that's my, you know, just intuition with working and building flat top forms. I do like your little, your little crooked branches that you have put on here. Those are great. Those are nice little survivor branches, but yeah, I would probably come down a little bit further and, and shorten up and le think a little less coarse on such a slender tree. But uh, what do you think, Carmen? Um, so I think generally when I see Don Redwoods growing naturally, they're very pyramidal. It's like very Christmas tree looking. So I think that as far as creating them in bonsai, you can do um, a lot of different things with them style wise, probably styling more like a flat top bald cypress is, is kind of where you want to go with it. Um, because I think, you know, just having kind of a, a pyramidal Christmas tree wouldn't really work. So, yeah, um, exciting. <laughs> mm -mm. No, but, um, so one thing I, I love these tiny little crooked branches on the trunk, the, the one, the lowest one, and then the one on the left there, I think that those are really, um, really interesting little branches. And the, the one thing that I, uh, so the trunk on this tree is super, super straight. And then you get up to where the chop is and there's a big curve there. Um, and something that I'm wondering is, uh, does that make sense to have such a large curve after you have such a straight trunk? So maybe a little bit less movement there, um, would make more sense. Um, and then as far as Evan was saying with the coarseness of these branches, I can see, you know, this being, you know, your first step of, of cutting this tree back. And then once these branches, you know, spread out, maybe they're giving you something else to cut back to. So you, you don't have this long coarse branch, um, coming out on, on the right side there, um, underneath that one that has a little bit more ramification. Um, but so I think, I think it's a young tree and I think that there's, um, you know, this is the first cut. So really at this point, there's a lot of things you can do with it. Um, but I would say maybe try and get that top to make a little bit more sense with that bottom piece. So, uh, maybe a little bit less movement or something, you know, just a little bit. Yeah. Maybe, um, not to make it straight, you know, but, um, yeah. I'm rambling at this point. No, um, it's a good point. Yeah. Cause but, if you're married to the, to the fact of keeping it tall, and you're going to mm -hmm. go with that leader. Yeah, a little bit less of a dramatic curve would suit the the straightness of the trunk better. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And then depending on whether you're doing the flat top style or, or something else, that's going to kind of determine what you want your branching to do. But it's a young tree, so it's kind of hard to critique it past that at this point. Um, I think based off the first picture, this is a good first cutback. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm curious to see where it goes. All right. So this... This is this has been a lot. This uh well the the podcast has been first we go into it thinking that we're going to like not have a lot of stuff to fill the the space sometimes and I'm like wait we're running over on on how much time we should be putting into this because this, this should carry over we've been doing we've been doing good so uh, we barely have enough time for our bonsai word of the week oh yeah what is that um so it's gonna be what is it um <laughs> everyone's like the peewee's playhouse all the all the uh the furniture is gonna jump up and scream uh shari miki you know shari what that miki. is shari miki no i just uh, know shari so based off of what you know what shari is what do you think the miki is i have no idea um it means driftwood oh so driftwood styles is kind of what that's kind of aimed towards um so okay. junipers that have a very, uh, very obvious concentration or feature of the bonsai is the 
deadwood style of the tree. It would be a driftwood style bonsai um, where the, the deadwood quality is over the top. It has lots of dramatic movement or it has a lot of feeling in the way that the driftwood is presented and it's a main feature of the tree where the foliage is really just kind of framing in that deadwood i feel like kimura like immediately comes to my mind with some of those junipers yeah kimura is kind of like the king of crazy you know jagged uh looking just pieces of deadwood that just come out very very long but then you're you're uh your foliage just kind of feels like it's trying to hold everything together. There's so much energy, you know, the trees, it, the tree obviously has had suffered the trauma. And now we're, we're finding a new, be, a new beginning, a new beginning mm-hmm. for this, for this tree and its foliage. Um, I think it's a very poetic uh, way to look at these old bonsai with a mm-hmm. lot of awesome deadwood. Uh, I would also, also like to thank my dog Willow for adding in some of her thoughts um, in this episode. Yeah. Good girl. Uh, doing what a blue healer would do. Well, uh, we'll have to give her her own her own seat in the co-host mm-hmm. if she keeps this up. But anyway, totally. So that we don't go we don't go too much longer. Um, let's go ahead and wrap this one up, and we'll uh, we'll be hopefully we'll get down our our guest artist coming up. Um, that should be a good time. So until next time, uh, thanks for tuning in to Little Things for Boneside People. And uh, this was Evan and Carmen Lesko-Bininsky. Oh, Jesus. I didn't do it. I did it again. Did, okay. Lesko-Bininsky. There, there we go. go. Awesome. There you go. Awesome. Good send off. All right. Thanks, Carmen. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> Evan. Remember, it's the little things. <laughs>